You're now Under Pressure. Under Pressure is a brief recurring podcast for busy clinicians, investigators, and trainees devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. We provide quick, lively, and accurate updates and reviews on important issues in hypertension diagnosis, management, and prognosis from our multidisciplinary team of experts. My name is Jennifer Cluett. I'm the clinical director of our BIDMC Hypertension Center at Healthcare Associates, and we're joined today by our co-host, Stephen Juraszek, the research director of our center, and special guests, Ken Muckamal and Ruth Alma turkson Okran, both fellow members of our Hypertension Center. Welcome to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. So I'm excited to dive into this publication of yours that just came out in the Journal of the American Heart Association in October of 2021. So Ruth Alma, why don't you take us through this a little bit? What is shared decision making exactly? So shared decision making is a collaborative process uh, where clinicians and patients work together to come to a mutual agreement uh, to the patient's plan of care, whether it's being on any kind of therapy or um, treatment regimen. And shared decision-making essentially centers around a patient's values and preferences and works to improve the communication process or the therapeutic relationship and uh, between clinicians and, and patients. And, and it takes the patient's experience into consideration and what they hope the outcome at the end of the, the relationship should be. Uh, shared decision-making also takes the patient's social context into consideration when making uh, the healthcare-related decisions. And this essentially means that um, a patient's immediate concerns are important, but also the, the social context is important. Wow, that sounds like important stuff. Uh, certainly, this should be something we've incorporating into our, our routine clinical care. Um, we'll get into strategies uh, to help our listeners think about doing that a little bit later in the podcast. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about the disparities in cardiovascular care between white and non-white patients? Uh, thank you. And there are documented differences in um, cardiovascular care between white patients and, and patients of color, um, particularly black patients, uh, which the literature has focused a lot on. And so taking uh, persons of African descent, for example, um, among them, they are about three times more likely than white persons to die from cardiovascular disease. Um, in addition, and black persons also have a much higher risk-adjusted mortality after they have myocardial infections, and, and especially when they are treated in hospitals that disproportionately uh, serve black patients in inner-city hospitals, for example. Then another one that has been talked about, I guess, in the media um, a lot uh, more recently, this includes race-based calculators um, or corrections on diagnostic or risk calculators, um, and especially when looking at practice-based um, guidelines when examining a risk or qualification for certain therapies for persons of color. And this forces race-based medicine and causes there to be either an under or over um, diagnosis and also directs resources away, can direct resources away from persons of color who, who need them. 
And so um, I guess some common ones include the EGFR calculator, which uses race in it. And so the ASCVD uh, risk calculator also uses that. And then if you're looking at even intervention, so cardiac surgeons also have a calculator uh, to estimate the risk of death and complications for as a result of thoracic surgery that also uses race. And if you're using that calculator, for example, Black persons can even have up to a 20% higher risk of uh, predicted risk of death um, or adverse outcomes. And so this could probably put them on a higher risk level, and then maybe they may not receive the intervention that could be life-saving. And so just a few of these things can lead to differences in allocation of resources or receiving therapies, and then essentially lead to um, differences in outcomes. And then we see the, the inequities in healthcare. Really important to get to a quality of care to understand how these calculators are impacting our clinical decisions, obviously. Um, right. So thank you for that background, Ruthama. Can you talk us through the difference between race and racism? Right. So race is socially constructed and it's a label that is placed, um, placed on people based on their physical characteristics. So one common one is skin color, but then also it could be as ancestral heritage, cultural affiliation, uh, history, um, ethnic classification, for example. And, uh, of course, there's growing evidence that race is not a reliable proxy for genetic differences or um, physiological, biological processes. And when we talk about racism, that is essentially a system that assigns values and structures uh, and, and, and structures um, the opportunities based on person's race and um, and essentially how they look. So racism can operate on different levels. So you have individual racism, and then you have institutional structural uh, racism. And if you want me to go in a little deeper into that, I can also do that. But in medicine, in addition to what we have um, what we discuss in terms of like the race-based calculators. For example, we have other um, influences. So for example, and these are not necessarily related to cardiovascular care, but then if you're talking about the VBAC calculator that's based on race because of the assumption that person, Black persons, um, the pelvis of Black persons are a little different. Um, and also for instance, spirometer where Black persons' lung capacities is is was said to be smaller. And so then you have differences in metrics and, and, and I guess interventions, subsequent interventions. It's incredible to me how pervasive the race is in some of the things we've done routinely in medicine for decades and not stop to think about whether or not it's a valid way to define people. Right. I, I totally agree. Ruthama, let's talk a little bit about uh, social determinants of health and how mm -hmm. that uh, helps us understand or frame conversations around shared decision making mm -hmm. and ways that we as clinicians can be assessing social determinants of health in our visits. Right. And when we think about, I guess, going back first, when we think about social determinants of health, that essentially involves how persons live, how they interact with others. And it's, it's essentially 
how they also grew up. And um, so when we're talking about social determinants of health in clinical practice, I do believe that we should make social determinants, the assessment of social determinants a routine part of clinical uh, encounters or the clinical workflow. And um, I guess one critique, and I will talk about that and I can talk about that more is, you know, people talking about time constraints and not being necessarily able to to do that assessment. But then I am advocating for, we have all these, you know, pre-visit assessments that we give patients to do anyway. And so what about incorporating assessments of social determinants of health into that? Um, so while they're, that's even before they come into the visit, or then while people are waiting in the waiting room, you know, doing that assessment out there. Um, and if you incorporating that into the EMR, and once you assess the social determinants of health and you have a trigger, for example, someone um, says, you know, it comes up positive for food insecurity or or being at risk of food insecurity. So that can essentially trigger either a referral to social work or whoever is, helps with uh, community resources, for example, to, to take that upon themselves and provide um, resources for the patients. So you've certainly covered one of the potential barriers to adding shared decision-making and social determinants of health to a busy clinical practice and offered a suggestion for how we can incorporate that in pre-visit mm-hmm. screening questions. Mm-hmm. I guess I, some, some some other things that I can add to that is that they are, in addition to the, the pre you know, the pre-visits where we can even use different, there are different instruments that can be used to assess it. So we have um, the prepare um, one, we have the accountable uh, health communities one that is, uh, that was created actually by uh, CMS, the Centers for Medi- uh, Medicaid and Medicare Services. And um, there are also ones that are, you know, upstream risks um, and they def- assess different things. But then also asking some of these social determinants of health questions um, during your your history. And as clinicians, we do this all the time, but then, you know, there are different ways to do that and being more cognizant or more conscious about the way that we do that in our interaction. So uh, one, one question that I think um, we need to be incorporating is asking patients, you know, what are their goals for their health? What, in addition to, you know, what are your preferred methods of communication in terms of language, for example, do they have, you know, asking them, do you have problems uh, making ends meet at the end of the month? How often do you have to skip meals in order to afford your medication, for example? And so that as those kinds of questions assess different parts of social determinants of health, which are important in their treatment, their whole plan of care. And then while doing all this, making sure that we are using, we're doing it in a way that highlights that the importance of their contribution and their experiences to the care, whether it's using uh, communication skills such as open communication, using um, summaries, um, periodic pauses to to make sure that there are also contribution to the conversation, teaching back at the end of of the interaction or even using communication aids or or, or decision aids also um, in that interaction. I agree. This is all so important. I I can't tell you the number of times in our hypertension center, we discover that somebody's blood pressure is not well controlled because they're not taking their medicine. And if you ask them why they're not taking it, it's because they can't afford to pick it up. Um, So incorporating these 
types of questions and understanding the patient's experience of their care is crucial mm-hmm. uh, in terms of making sure that we're uh, achieving the uh, our goals for them and their health and making sure that those goals are aligned. Right. Could you give us an example, Ruth Alma, of how using shared decision-making and uh, assessing social determinants of health um, has helped a patient improve their outcomes and their experience of care? Uh, so I guess one case that can come into my mind is, um, so just, let's take this typical case. So you have, um, let's say, a 48-year-old male who comes into the clinic and in addition to having um, a history, a previous history of high cholesterol, is found to have an elevated blood pressure uh, at that at that visit. And um, so, let's say the blood pressure is one forty six over eighty eight, for example. And his blood pressure, but then he says that his blood pressure is usually not elevated um, at home or outside the clinic setting. And um, looking at the history of his visits, you see that he has had a history of intermittently, you know, missing his scheduled appointments and also um, a blood pressure six months ago was also elevated in the similar range as he is now um, with a family history that is um, significant for um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. And, and further you know, interaction with him, you realize that he does have um, a, a relatively moderate level of health literacy when he has a, a college education, but then he's also... Um, he says that he he often skips some of his meals in order to afford some of his medication, and often does not is not able to afford all his medication. And um, the, so then, what would be the best way to approach a situation like this? And I think going back, going back with the with shared decision making in mind, I think the first thing to assess is, you know, what are his goals for his healthcare? And what does he feel is, um, I guess, what are his values in terms of, um, of health, of maintaining an ideal, uh, quote unquote, ideal state of health. Um, and so from then, and we can talk about discussing blood pressure, how it is diagnosed, um, and then different ways to manage it, uh, his lifestyle. So are there, does he have dietary restrictions? Are there things that he may not necessarily tolerate that we usually um, on a daily basis recommend, whether it's, you know, increased fruits and vegetables and things like that. And then um, does he have access to a safe place where he can engage in physical activity? Um, and then also going going back into his, his medication, what is he, in addition to not being able to afford that, t- having that discussion um, and providing tailored resources that are easy to uh, understand and relevant to his goals in addition to talking about self-monitoring. So giving him some part of some autonomy also, um, whether it's, you know, monitoring his blood pressure at home or, you know, in in an out-of-clinic setting. So if he doesn't have access and cannot afford a home blood pressure monitor, sorry, is he, does he have access to a pharmacy, for example, that provides free, um, a grocery store where they have free blood pressure screening? And, And is that a way that is that feasible for him to do that regularly to monitor his blood pressures at, at home and track them, for example. Also discussing, does he have any kind of social support at home? Someone that he, in addition 
addition to being accountable to us as clinicians, can be accountable to at home, someone who can probably learn and know the parameters for uh, emergent condition uh, situations, for example. Um, so that's putting that more autonomy on on him in terms of, um, say, for healthcare decisions, for example. And then I think I might have also mentioned um, providing community resources uh, that are related to his his food insecurity. So um, does he have access to, or can he get access to like, food banks, for example, food pantries? Um, and then maybe working with um, whether it's social work or clinical resource uh, personnel in the clinic to ensure that he does have these resources also. So those are um, that those are just like simple ways of making sure that with his care, whatever we're doing is based on his preferences, his values, and he does have um, a, a say in in his care. Ruthama, thanks for sharing that. The first question I have, and I'm just sort of trying to put myself in the position of I think many physicians who who may be listening is actually I think a little bit of a sense of fear um, of what we <laughs> might get if we really engage in. Um, and this and these kinds of really important but difficult discussions. Um, uh, for example, if we do so, um, screening for social determinants of health, and um, we are likely to find out that people are struggling with a lot of obstacles that we didn't realize. Right. But I think many physicians then feel that they may not be in a position to deal with those obstacles. And it, it may just simply be, you know, too overwhelming for them. What kind of advice can we give folks who are struggling with the idea that some of what they're going to learn in this way is really important, but is, I, I think, at least in theory, potentially modifiable? Right. So that's a really great question. And I think um, a lot of times, you know, we we as clinicians also feel that burden and, you know, like, what if we can't fix it? And I think one thing that we should realize is that we are, work in a healthcare team. And so we should also, we may not personally have those resources, but there may be someone in our team who has that. And so that's why um, I was making sure that I, I also brought the input of support staff. So whether it's social work, um, case management, and, um, and and other other people who are community health workers, for example, also into the team. So there are community health workers who might have access to things in the community that we don't know of. Um, they might have, they may have a collated list of, of food pantries of places that give out, uh, food, you know, regularly. Some, you know, some, some faith-based organizations do that. And so, um, those could be specifically for fit and food insecurity could be stuff that address that. Uh, but then you're also talking, there are other things that, um, they may have. It may be related to maybe transportation, for example. Um, knowing that, you know, this is not a perfect system, um, but then there's some, there's some things and other, other, uh, members in the healthcare team who can help us, um, um, address some of these things. And I think that's the beauty of having a, a really dynamic healthcare team that we can, uh, collaborate with. I couldn't agree more. I, I think. I agree with you, Ken. Sometimes uh, not knowing what you're going to uncover may make it a little bit uneasy to go down this pathway. But one of the questions I've started to ask all of our patients in the hypertension center is, what is the cost of your copays? And is that manageable for you? Are you able to get that? And 
you'd be surprised how frequently there's actually a formulary change that we didn't know about. And a patient is paying a lot more for a medication that just doesn't even need to happen. And by making a a simple shift in medications or switching someone uh, from one agent in a class to a different agent that is now covered or not covered or or vice versa can make a big difference in their out-of-pocket healthcare expenses that can then translate into them being able to take their medications more consistently and therefore better control of their underlying conditions. So I hear you that, you know, there's a concern you're going to open Pandora's box, but I think there's even very simple things you can do without tapping into some of the excellent resources that Ruth Alma has alluded to that can make a huge difference in patient care. And I've seen that a lot. And we can certainly put some of those uh, screening tools uh, Jen, in the show notes, because um, it is undoubtedly true that not knowing about it doesn't make it any better. It just means you don't know about it. Um, and totally the agree. first step is to dealing with these is to have a systematic and consistent way in which you screen for for social determinants of health. I thank Ruth Alma for, for pointing us to a few of those. Yes, thank you. I totally agree. Um, and I think, and it's doing that is always going to be dynamic because there is going to be some commercial, for example, um, some commercial pharmacies might have a discounted list of medications and those change every other month or something like that. And so just having all those things available to us and just being sure that we are dynamic in the way we are, we are, I guess, searching and providing the resources. Exactly. It's interesting that the race-based calculators, none of them incorporate um, social determinants of health into it. And so um, I guess it would be... So like the ASCBD risk, is that what you're saying? Yeah, so whether it's the GFR, ASCBD risk, um, you know, the AHA's failure risk score, none of them incorporates um, social determinants into it. You know, it's a really thought-provoking question. Um, And... uh, there is actually a risk estimator in Scotland, um, the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. Uh, it's kind of interestingly named, uh, but it does try to get at this issue of socioeconomic uh, determinants of health in terms of risk of cardiovascular disease. And, you know, I, I don't know why the pooled estimating equation from uh, many course studies uh, does not incorporate uh, those kinds of measurements. I I suspect that part of the issue may be related to missing data, um, that, you know, uh, sometimes people don't like to give information on like income, for example, or uh, health insurance status. And so as a result, uh, maybe it's just not as robustly collected and has been left out of many models. But at least in one case I can think of, it is quite useful in in terms of helping us stratify risk of uh, CBD events. So I, I think it's an excellent point. Yeah, so um, yeah, that, that, that actually is a really good point. And so I think maybe what I guess can be done, I guess maybe future research, for example, should look into um, the incorporation of some of these, you know, determinants of health into, you know, the risk scores because there are the studies that have shown that incorporating, um, I guess, a social index or, you know, social social um, in- indices or social characteristics are actually more important than um, your genetic factors, uh, whether it's ancestry and, and polygenic risk scores. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, more important than polygenic risk scores, for example, in examining, you know, health outcomes. In, and so polygenic risk scores, if you're talking 
talking about social demographic characteristics such as age, for example, is more important than a, a polygenic risk score um, in determining health outcomes. And so, so that could be um, some things that could be incorporated. But you're totally right, Stephen. I think that um, per- perhaps um, looking further into why um, the difficulty in, in incorporating some of these social determinants into risk scores and, and, and seeing what which ones are the most effective um, in predicting um, cardiovascular risk or um, treatment and so on. So this is clearly an enormous topic, and we really only <laughs> scratched the surface in uh, many of the interesting facets that we could discuss. Uh, but I do think we should probably wrap up. Uh, is there one clinical pearl or one sort of last tip that you could give our listeners um, that they could take away from this podcast and, and put into practice today? So I would say, um, I guess to sum it all up with, with sort of shared decision making, we do have to value, uh, the patients as important and equally positioned partners in, in the health, in their healthcare. And, and our interactions, uh, with patients do count and can, um, is critical for achieving, um, desired outcomes that are based on, again, the patient's preferences and, and, and their values and, and goals for for, for um, and health goals. And so, um, of course, because this can lead to greater autonomies um, and improved relationship between and trust um, between clinicians and um, and patients. And this is important. And so um, that probably means maybe rethinking or having a little bit of a cultural shift in, um, in the practice of medicine um, and putting patients, their experiences um, and, and, and providing respect to patients and so that there can be some more equitable management of, of cardiovascular conditions and which can lead to improved outcomes and the promotion of health equity, especially among historically marginalized persons. Great. Thank you so much. This was such an interesting discussion. Thanks for listening to another edition of Under Pressure, the brief recurring podcast devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. For all of us, uh, Ken Makamal, Stephen Jurashek, Ruth Alma, Turks and Okran, and myself, uh, you've been under pressure. <laughs>